I pulled aside our director of customer support, I believe also success. And I said, what percentage of your time is spent on merchants that will not become long-term successful paying customers? And they said, at least 50%. And I said, okay, that is a disaster. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy, happy Thursday morning. We are back. It is the TMBA podcast, of course. What is the theme of the show again, boss man? Do you have it ready at hand? The name of the show? The theme. Oh, the theme of the show. Oh, it's one of those things, you know, you say it all the time, so I just kind of I just kind of blank out you during that. You space out yeah. for the first 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you delegate. <laughs> it's interesting. In some ways, I think, although the some of the business models, some of the locations, and some of the personalities change, the themes, I think, have been here since day one over 10 years ago, which is, look, if you want financial freedom... If you want to control where and when you live and what you do, one of the best ways to do that is to start a business on the internet. That's basically it. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to learn about today. And speaking of starting businesses on the internet, another underlying theme of the show is that me and you, boss man, have an incredible talent for totally ignoring business opportunities that turn out to be complete gold mines. And one such story is about to unfold in your earbuds today. I am Jordan Gall. I am the co-founder and CEO at Carthook, where we offer Shopify merchants the ability to do post-purchase offers. Now, Ian, Jordan's actually a customer of ours. Over at Dynamite Jobs, we've helped him recruit some key members of his team, and that's how we got to know Jordan and his story. So I got to ask you up front, boss man, is this episode an under-the-table deal between you two? Is there something going on here we need to know about? I'm just trying to get even, and uh, you will find out in the show what I'm trying to get even over. Got it. I'm trying to settle the score a little bit. <laughs> I really like talking to Jordan, and I think that this was a fun interview. He's somebody that I've admired for uh, several years. He's built an incredible business, and I think he's done it in an interesting way. He has, and I think we all have a, a lot to learn from this story. I was wondering, Ian, if you could give us a little context for maybe the scale of what Jordan's up to. Well, we talked about getting to a billion-dollar GMV, and uh, GMV being gross merchandise value. So the people on the platform, Shopify specifically, is who they support, are doing a billion dollars. It's incredible to hear numbers like that coming from you know, a, a bootstrap founder who's been around in the bootstrap community for, for a long time. So you're going to hear about that, plus some straight up thoughts about the pros and cons of creating and growing a SaaS or software as a service. And what Jordan describes as Carthook's black market software. And becoming a partner of an enormous behemoth like Shopify, the critical importance of pricing, all that and more from someone who is really walking the walk. It's a good one. I promise. Take it away, boss man. 
Jordan, that's not your real name, is it? It's not my real name. I was born in Israel, and my Hebrew name really had a rough time translating to English. So at some point, right before going to college, I said, you know what? I'm just going to remove that crazy hurdle that I've had to deal with from my life. And I chose a nice, nice Jewish boy name, Jordan. Did you actually choose it or did you have some help from your parents or family? No, I chose it. And I'm kind of proud that it didn't go off the rails because when you're 18, it could have been something real weird. <laughs> According to the rules of the religion, you're not supposed to have tattoos. So if you're not going to get a tattoo, you may as well pick a crazy name. But it seems like you didn't even do that. Nope. I've never really thought of getting a tattoo and then I moved to Portland. <laughs> Tattoos <laughs> everywhere. You changed your name, Jordan. I think this is pretty common of the immigrants. How did your uh, family feel about it then? And how do they feel about it now, you think? They were cool with it. And I respect my parents for kind of not basically giving any opinion and just allowing me to do what I thought was right on that front. The truth is they call me a different name entirely. So my family calls me Noni, which is like a nickname from way back. So all my best friends call me that. My family calls me that. So I see my name as disconnected from my identity. My name is just a word that you use to represent me when you think of me or when you want to like talk to me or call me or something. So I, I separate the two. So I, I don't have this attachment to, well, that name is me and like messing with it changes who I am. It's an interesting concept, you know, and I think it's one that we kind of fall prey to a lot with these businesses. You know, these businesses become who we are in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's hard to disconnect yourself from that. Do you think about that in terms of your business too? I do. I think about that a lot because it's impossible to separate your ego from your business and your success or lack thereof. And I've fallen prey very often, especially in the beginning to my mood and my self-confidence being tied to our revenue and our growth. And in the beginning, it's, that's, that's not pretty. You almost have to overcome it. You have to, in your mind, go beyond how small and how early on your company is and think bigger and think more confidently. And then as you get more successful, you then have to disconnect it to make sure you're not running away with that and your ego isn't kind of escaping so I always just try to keep context. Like no matter how quickly we grow or how big we are, there's always bigger. <laughs> there's always faster. So I just keep that in check. And at the same time, I don't want to be a company in my head. I'm a business person and I want to own companies and I want to own assets and investments. And I want to view it that way, like one step removed as opposed to I am Cardhook. And if Cardhook succeeds, I am awesome. And if it fails, I'm terrible. I don't want that. It's a very mature approach. I think it's a hard one to have, especially when you see maybe other people around you in your organization, even investing more than you do and then getting offended when you're not as invested as they are. Like the literal work, the amount of work that you do and what you do all day, that's been a strange arc of experience because I started off being 100% responsible. It was just me in the company for a while. And then it was another person and it was four of us and I was doing all the sales and I was doing what I felt like everything critical on the customer side of things, right? Not engineering and not product, whether it was marketing, sales, podcasts, all that. And I slowly started to back out. And now the team is, I mean, these individual people on the team are far better than I am at these individual roles. But then it starts to get into a place where I'm not really doing that much work. 
that's strange because you feel you feel somewhat guilty, but then you tell yourself, "Well, I shouldn't feel guilty." But then you do feel guilty. It's it's a strange dynamic, but I do feel okay with the direction it's heading because I'm genuinely not good at executing on a task list. Like I am good at talking to people and conveying the ideas and learning from other people and then taking that and formulating into what I think is going to happen in the future. That's actually what I'm good at, not the day-to-day execution. And I did it while I had to, but now people are genuinely better at at it than I am. Well, I don't think it's fair, Jordan, to, to call it not work. It's just a different kind of work, right? And it's actually one that if you haven't been in that position before, it's not necessarily respected or even recognized. Because a lot of times it's just making a bunch of little micro decisions and then making maybe three big decisions over the course of a month or a week or even a year. But those decisions kind of propel the business in a way that only you could do and only you had the vision to do. And I think you know, the fact that you were mopping the floor in the beginning and now you have to manage the person that mops the floor or at least help them with their job. I mean, that's just invaluable insight that you have because you kind of went on that trajectory. What I'd like you to do is explain what your early product was up until 2019. So we started off with a cart abandonment product. That was the first product that Carthook launched. That's why it's called Carthook. And when was this? This is 2015. Okay. Can I read you an email from 2015 that I have here? Did I email you? That you emailed us. So <laughs> oh, yes. I want to read this on the show because... I think this will be a testament to our poor judgment and ill forecasting. Uh, so I just want this to be on the record. <laughs> oh, yes. Let's do it. In 2015, you guys are just spinning up. And we had been selling products, uh, e-commerce companies, since about 2008. We had a guy, uh, Derek, working for us. And he was yes. kind of working the e-commerce side. And I think we were, we were on WordPress at this point. And so I'll read the email from our guy, Derek, and then I want to read your response. Okay. And this is to Dan and I. Hey, guys, I met with Jordan last year after Dan conversed with him on Twitter about cart abandonment software. Since then, we became customers of his SaaS, CartHook. And I'm in my ivory tower. I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. I guess that happened. So far, CartHook has helped us recover 22,000 in abandoned shopping carts over at our site, the valet spot. Jordan has been great to work with, and I really like his software. Recently, Jordan had some interesting opportunities, so I wanted you to connect with him. Dan replies internally <laughs> to me, and he goes, you, question mark, as if he's too busy to take this conversation. Right, right. And then you reach out and you say, hey, this is uh, Jordan from CartHook. I'm a fan of the podcast. I very much appreciate uh, you being one of CartHook's customers. Derek has been my favorite customer contact for a long time. He rocks. I recently mentioned to him that I'm thinking about raising money for my business. I expected to bootstrap it, but recent events like an acquisition offer and interest from investors, and most importantly, seeing a real reason for outside investment have changed my mind on the approach. I wanted to reach out to you two directly because my idea is to bring on investors and partners that can add value beyond just money. I believe you can do that. If you're interested in talking... I'd love to simply have a conversation, ask you for your advice on the situation, see if that makes sense. Jordan. So, wow. <laughs> wow. I got a little, little emotion. <laughs> that's, that's pretty wild. What are you feeling? Oh, man. That's, uh, I'm thinking about you know, who I was back then and what I was feeling back then. I was, I was hungry. 
the whole journey got started a bit before that. I coincidentally ran into a family friend in San Francisco. I was trying to get a software company going. I don't know how to code and convinced him to build the first version of the product. Soon after launching that, he gets his dream job offer. And so then I ran it for the remainder of that year by myself. And then holiday time, I think 2014, I get an email out of the blue from a well-known entrepreneur that we, we all know asking to acquire the business. And I happened to be in New York at the time visiting family. And when I do that, I would always go see all my buddies from college and have lunch with them and go get drinks and so on. And so I tell them about this acquisition offer and they're like, dude, it's too early. Like, don't sell. Like, I'll put in 25K, like raise some money and like go, go for it. I never considered it. I was a bootstrapper at heart from the microconf community, the whole deal. But then I basically just saw, okay, there's like some money right here. And that's right when I reached out to you. Man, you guys screwed that up. <laughs> <laughs> Look, one of the things that I tell people around investment, that it's my job as the founder to make sure that everyone that I talk to about investing in the company that decides to decline regrets it forever. <laughs> this is exactly what I tell people too. I, I, again, I said before I read this, I want this to be a testament to our bad judgment. I vaguely remember talking to you during that conversation. And I vaguely remember thinking like, uh, this isn't a good idea. Look, it's, it's several steps removed from what we're doing now. It was valid to have difficulty seeing where it goes. Like, okay, it's, it's good. It's not defensible. Everyone can copy it. There's a bunch of competitors. And as the entrepreneur, right underneath that, what you're really trying to talk about is you're not, you're not betting on this piece of software. You are betting on me, but you don't know me yet. So you don't know confidence and the ambition that I have. And like, that's what a pitch is. It sounds to me like I didn't do a good enough job conveying that future in, in the conversation. That's it. Well, Jordan, I'll tell you, I'll give you another shot at the original terms if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to say what those terms were. <laughs> uh, so at the time you turned down this offer to acquire the company, you went out and you raised some money. I raised $275,000. $275,000. And what was your idea at the time with that $275,000? Just work on it full time. Just stop doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that because I knew everyone I sold said yes. So it was get into a free trial, look at it. I made a no-brainer pricing offer. I basically said, you pay us 10% of recovered revenue capped at 99 bucks a month. And literally everybody signed up. I realized, okay, I have, I have a business. Then when the acquisition opportunity came up and all that did was really create interest and, and credibility and then parlayed that into investment. But on the way to investment, I knew I needed a technical co-founder because I'm just me in a software company that doesn't know how to write code, which doesn't work if you're raising money. And so that's when I found Ben, Ben Fisher, who was my co-founder for a long time. I saw him sign up for my lead magnet on the site and he had a cool email address. It's ben at skinnyandbald.com. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but that's cool. I, I got to go check this guy out. And I looked him up and he was legit and I got him on the phone and I sold him on the future. 
And he said, all right, I want to be in e-commerce too. Maybe we give this thing a go. And that's right when I said, look, well, I have some money interest. If you could bring some money to the table too from your network, we have salaries and let, let's see what we can do. That's how it started. And then we hired Rock, who's now the CTO. As the first engineer, uh, we found him in Slovenia through a friend. And then we hired Jan. And then it was the four of us for about two years. We built the card abandonment product. And then we identified the checkout upsell opportunity, built that product, still just the four of us. That's the product that took off and we're kind of transitioning out of now. And at a certain point, you know, we were on WooCommerce or whatever it was, and you were servicing us. So at some point you decided to go all in on Shopify. Yeah, not on purpose. I actually wanted to stay away from Shopify. Our card abandonment software had this one feature that was usually reserved for more expensive versions of abandoned card software. And that was the ability to grab the email address as soon as it's typed on the page. On Shopify, they don't allow JavaScript on the checkout page. So that took away our magic. Why would we want to integrate there if we get commoditized like everybody else that has to wait for the API to grab the email address? So I wanted to stay away from Shopify for a really long time until we just had enough people saying, but we want to use your software and we're on Shopify. Please build it. That's actually what led to the next idea, because when we went to integrate with their checkout, we realized this checkout's super rigid. You can't really do anything with it. And right around that same time, ClickFunnels was exploding. And so I would lurk in the ClickFunnels Facebook group. And what I noticed what was happening was people would go onto ClickFunnels. They would start to sell physical products on ClickFunnels, which is a platform that's made for digital products that doesn't have the concept of inventory shipping fulfillment. And so then the merchant would, once they start to get to any scale, once you start doing 10 orders a day, 100 orders a day, you can't manage it in a CSV. And so people were moving over to Shopify. But when they moved over to Shopify, they lost the post-purchase upsell functionality that they loved so much in ClickFunnels. And I kept seeing these posts come up over and over and over again in the ClickFunnels Facebook group. And that's when it hit me. Let's build a checkout replacement for Shopify that allows us to do the post-purchase upsells. And so our original product was a bridge between a ClickFunnels landing page, a card hook checkout with upsells, and then send the order data into Shopify. That's where the checkout idea actually came from. Can you remember one or two decisions, either right or wrong, that you've made that you felt like were real game changers for Cardhook's history so far? Absolutely. There were three that I can think of right now. Let's see if I can remember all three of them now that I said three. So the, fir <laughs> <laughs> right, the, the first one was we had four people in the company. We had a product in the market doing about 15K in MRR. And then I made the decision to build a second product. And that was like bet the farm because we didn't like the future of the abandoned cart app that we were running. We found a bigger idea. The checkout with post-purchase upsells for Shopify was a, was a bigger idea, but it was scary because we only had four people, two of them engineers. We had about hundred K in the bank. We were not profitable yet. And it was, it was bet the farm. The second decision was around pricing. We were getting inundated with inbound. We got overwhelmed as soon as we launched the checkout upsell product. And when we did that, we were at $100 a month. And we got so much inbound that I said, okay, the product isn't ready. It's not good enough yet. It's going to take us a few months to get it ready. What do we do in that situation? 
So I said, okay, we're going to shut down signups and we're going to triple the price from 100 to 300 bucks a month. And the demand just stayed exactly the same. And that told us, okay, we're onto something bigger than we expected because we had the pricing wrong and it feels like we could have made it 500 and it wouldn't have changed. So people really want this. And what that did is gave us the confidence to persevere because it was a really painful first year. A checkout product, we didn't really understand what we're getting into. It's not like our other email product where if email doesn't go out for an hour, it kind of sucks, but it's not that big of a deal. If anything happens for 60 seconds on a checkout product, you cost people money and they yell at you rightfully. And so just everything, the, the way we do deploys, the way we do Q&A, the technology we choose, that first year, we, we have to learn a lot. And through that period, having the much higher price point like saved us because it grew revenue much faster with fewer customers that we were actually able to handle. The third decision was the biggest one by far, which was June 2019. Our product is 300 bucks a month. We have somewhere between 300 and 400 trials a month. So it's 90 to 120,000 in potential MRR signing up every month. And we made the decision to shut down free trials and require an application and increase the price to 500 bucks a month and add a half a percent transaction fee. So like severely increase the price and increase the price on existing customers. So that decision was really scary to go from 100K in potential MRR signing up every month to having that drop down to like 20 signups a month was scary, but it, it was necessary. And that, that, I would say, I don't know if I save the company is a bit dramatic, but that changed, that changed everything for us because we got churned down from 10% a month down to 1.5% a month. We started working with bigger and bigger customers and more and more legit customers in the direct to consumer world instead of in the drop shipping world. And then because we changed pricing on the existing customers, we gave them six months. We said, look, it's July 1st. We're not about to raise your prices right before Q3 and 4 for the holidays. So pricing increase for existing customers goes into effect in January. So January 2020, our revenue went up like 100K a month immediately from the price change. No one dropped off. Churn stayed the same. And then COVID hits two months later and our customers, our GMV, like our, the amount of revenue customers are processing through our checkout, went from 40 million a month to 80 million a month. And because we added that transaction fee, our revenue doubled with it. So like that, what I would call a brave, scary decision in June 2019, just changed the whole trajectory of the company and the revenue and the profitability and our resources and what we're doing now. It, it, it had a huge impact. Jordan, you're uh, really active in the in the SaaS community. You have a podcast. I assume you talk to a lot of SaaS owners. My guess is that you discuss some of this pricing with them. Two of the three of the biggest decisions you've made, it sounds like, were pricing decisions. How did you come to the conclusion that that's something that was going to be necessary for you guys moving forward? So the first one was closer to an accident. Going from 100 to 300, just trying to slow things down that wasn't this strategic brilliance of, uh, I know exactly what to do. It was really like, let's just slow things down. And that because the demand stayed the same, that gave us information that said, okay, you need to have a better understanding of what you have on your hands, how much demand there is in the market, how much people are making in e-commerce, how critical the checkout and post-purchase upsell function is to their business. So you need to understand 
like your value more. And that helped us. And we had one competitor at the time and we were 10 times the cost. And that felt strange and also felt amazing. And we kept pushing on that. So that led into positioning. That's kind of where, where we stand now, where we really specifically chose who we wanted to work with, right? That's our application process was kind of crazy. It's the Shopify ecosystem, very, very highly competitive. We're not in the app store. So this is like black market software that you can't get in the app store. And then you get there. Not only is it $500 a month to start, but you can't even sign up. You have to fill out an application. And then we will tell you if you are at the level that is acceptable to us. And if not, and we declined at least 50%, we would send you a link to our competitor and saying, that's a better fit for you. And that, that felt amazing. So it was directly linked to pricing, but it wasn't just pricing. A lot of it stemmed from just the amount of value that we saw that we were adding. There's something about our product because it is directly linked to revenue. There's no layer. Like you're using our product and it makes you money and the payment processing happens on our product. We've seen companies that come in and let's say they do $500,000 a month in revenue and they turn our product on. And then within 60 days, they're doing $100,000 in just upsell revenue. And so we looked at that and we say, well, not only do we want to participate in that upside, it's actually better for everybody if we participate in that upside. If we win only when the merchant wins, the merchant wins big, we win big also, all of a sudden we have alignment, we have incentives aligned, we have a partnership. We don't look to work with thousands and thousands of customers. We want, we want a smaller subset of very successful merchants that we want to make even more successful. It really coalesced to make sense, to this position makes sense for our product and our company at this time. And did you actually have limited resources, meaning we're onboarding customers that are doing X amount of revenue based on this application because we actually have limited resources to help these people? Yes, that is the flip side of it. The actual necessity is we learned a lot more about our product because in June 2019, I didn't come up with this out of the blue. I came up with it because I, I started to get the sense that the team was getting tired. And I had this very critical conversation. I pulled aside our director of customer support, and I believe also success. And I said, what percentage of your time is spent on merchants that will not become long-term successful paying customers. And they said, at least 50%. And I said, okay, that is a disaster. That is a disaster for you as the employees, for the company and the way you're spending your time, for the fact that we are not satisfying these people anyway that are going to end up leaving. And worst of all, the best customers we don't have enough time for. It was all wrong. And we were growing nicely. We were doing a few hundred K in MRR and the growth was good, but the churn was like 10 to 12% monthly. There's a formula out there that can tell you what your maximum MRR is given your growth rate and your churn rate. And when I looked at that, we were getting pretty close to that max. When those two reach equilibrium, your growth rate and your churn start to equal out based on your price point. And you realize there's no more growth at that point. Yes then it's just, just increasing the speed on the treadmill. Right. And who wants to do that? So I took all these things and, and really came to the conclusion that our software isn't meant to be used by thousands of people. 
it was pretty intensive on the onboarding. You had to switch it, your payment processing, your tracking and your integrations and all this stuff. And so let's just, let's just admit that we shouldn't be doing what everyone thinks you should be doing. Let's do what's right for us, even if it looks a little strange. But we made the process fit our product and our company. And that's when things lined up and worked. Well, most people in that situation, Jordan, I think would just put the B squad on these potential quote customers, right? And then put your A squad on the guys that are paying you the most money and keep going, right? So it's like, well, you know, they might convert. And is it worth, you know, couple thousand dollars a month to have these people trying to convert them or or maybe the approach would be to figure out how to increase that conversion i think a lot of people would look at that churn and say well it's 10 percent. maybe if we do xyz we could get it down to five did you consider those things as well we considered everything you know but at that point in time the product had come a really long way and the product was working well and the results it was amazing what people were doing with the product but only a subset of people that fit. And I had an immature view of what fit meant for our product. I thought fit was if you're doing over 100K a month, you're a good fit. And as I started to realize that that was incomplete, I found an article by Lincoln Murphy, who's known for his like onboarding information. And he had this article about different types of fit, revenue fit, strategic fit, culture fit, technical fit, all these different parts that we started to expand our view of what fit really means. And what we started to realize was if we don't talk to these people and ask them, we just can't figure out if they're actually a good fit. Knowing how much money you make per month is the start of it. But what other integrations are you using? Can you or can you not switch out your payment processing the way we need? What are your strategic requirements? Do we like to work with you and do you like to work with us? So we started to take a fuller view of what it meant to fit between our company and our product and their company. And that we we could not do without the application process and the demo and building up relationship. Give me a second to talk about today's sponsor, Travis Jamison, smashdigital.com. They're the first people we reach out to whenever we're thinking about improving our rankings or any SEO question, frankly. In fact, recently I reached out to the team at Smash Digital with a 301 SEO project, which wasn't a great fit for them. So they referred me to someone who could help. And I know that's why we use them. And so many listeners of this pod use the services over at smashdigital.com. The reality is they really know what they're talking about. They've got skin in the game. They use the exact same methods for their clients that they do to rank their own portfolio of profitable businesses. That's right there, practitioners. It's really empowering to deal with experts who are just straight up and honest about what they can and can't do for your rankings and your SEO in general, rather than being walked through some cheesy sales process by SEO services built for people who really don't understand the power of SEO or how it applies specifically to their business. So if you want to have Smash Digital in your business's back pocket or just learn more about what they do, check them out over at smashdigital.com. We appreciate the team at Smash for sponsoring the show. You mentioned to me, you called your own product a black market product. Why is that? (laughs) Because we weren't allowed in the app store. A post-purchase upsell is the ability to offer an additional product or products after the checkout is actually done. So a typical e-commerce transaction is you put a product in the cart, you go to the checkout page, you pay, and then you go to the thank you page, and that's it. 
Post-purchase upsells allow you to put offers in between the checkup page and the thank you page. So instead of the Amazon, you may also like upsell that's adding you, asking you to add something to the cart and buy it together. This allows the shopper to go through and make the purchase. So let's say they're buying a coffee maker and they go into the checkout, put in their payment info and hit buy. So now the purchase is done. And what you're doing is taking the payment token generated on the checkout page and reusing that payment token on the offer page so that in order to accept the upsell, the shopper doesn't have to re-enter any information. They just hit yes, and it gets added to the same order, and then everyone wins. So in order to do that, you need the payment. And the only way to do that is to actually do the checkout page and to replace the Shopify checkout on a platform that makes all their money on the checkout means you can't be in the app store. And so at what point does someone like Shopify start to notice what you guys are up to? A few months ago. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, you have a, a multi-million dollar business and you're kind of lurking in the shadows, essentially. Yes. And we have some interaction with Shopify, but not much. And we know that they are not happy with what we're doing, but they also know that we take really good care of our merchants. And they know that we've also helped close several very large merchants that were doing post-purchase offers somewhere else and wanted to move to Shopify, but would not move to Shopify unless they could use the card hook checkout with upsells. And so we helped them close some big, big name merchants. So we had this bit of an uneasy tension. And at some point they just came to us and said, okay, let's, let's figure this out. And the compromise we came up with was we will stop taking on new customers to our checkout if they build up the API functionality that allows us to do post-purchase offers inside the Shopify checkout. By the end of this month, our supported Shopify app will be in the Shopify app store that enables merchants to do post-purchase offers through the Shopify checkout. So it has been a hell of a journey between you know 2015 and now, but we're, we're about to go legit. Talk about like hitching your wagon to the wrong or right horse. You know, this seems like it could have gone a lot of different ways, you know, especially if you're not having conversations directly with each other. How nervous were you the last couple of years that overnight you could kind of be just wiped off the planet? Extremely nervous and increasingly nervous the more successful we got. So it was a really difficult experience to, on one hand, see this business that I, you know, dreamt up and forced into existence with some brute force and then with some help from investors and then other people, and then it turned into a team. And then it goes from, you know, a thousand bucks a month to 10,000 to a hundred thousand to 200,000 and beyond. And all of a sudden I have an office and I have 25 employees. And this is my dream. I've been dreaming of for decades, literally decades. Since your name was not Jordan. Exactly right. Exactly right. Even before then, because yeah, I grew up in an immigrant entrepreneur household. I've always wanted to do this. And to have that at the same time and just feel like it could just go away at any minute and to carry those two for years was, was a trip, man. It was a, it was a crazy experience. I feel like I'm very capable now of leading in a stressful environment because you know I was forged in, in a fire. <laughs> no kidding. When we sold our business in 2015, I was in Greece and I was like inking the paper on a, on, on a bed in some hotel looking overlooking the ocean. And 
the day after that, I got like super sick, like uh, flu, because I just oh. like released all this stress. Oh my god! <laughs> Did you have a moment like that where you kind of released your stress? I'm not done. I'm still holding it in. <laughs> to be completely honest. Why are you holding it in, Jordan? I mean, you've accomplished something great. You've partnered with Shopify. It seems like you have a solid direction. Why are you still stressed? Uh, we're not through it. I feel a lot better now than I did a few months ago. The cash management involved in the business was always very tricky uh, because I did not want to get on a venture path. We raised a little bit more money after that, but always friends and family, non-institutional. The truth is we had one institutional investor and I bought their shares back a few months ago because I didn't like the relationship. So the cash management around how much cushion do you really need in this situation was so stressful. And the price increase and the COVID boom for e-commerce and everything else will finally gave us the breathing room that I'm, I'm calmer now. And obviously the Shopify agreement was another big domino to fall in terms of the, the stress just being better, but we're not done. We, we have a transition to go through. Think about you know, building a software company and a software product for years, and it's it's booming. It is growing like crazy. And then one day, you can't take on any new customers. And you need to build a new app from scratch, and launching is in like 60 days. We're still sprinting right now. We're still stressed. We're still in it. I have a lot of confidence in what's about to happen, but it's not like a sure thing. We're still, we still have to get through it and make sure we don't screw up the product and the bugs and whatever else. So I won't be fully, fully calm until revenue from the new product exceeds the revenue from the existing product. You mentioned Shopify's opening up their API or they're making it more robust so you can integrate with it. Are they doing that just for you or is there now more opportunity for others to kind of get in the space? A little bit of both. So they're not doing it just for us, but they are doing it for a limited set of functionality with a limited set of partners. And the truth is they have to. Even bigger than post-purchase offers is subscriptions. And subscriptions is one of these things on Shopify that whatever you want to talk about the way they handled it, they, they did what they thought was best, which is choose a few partners and make them official partners, get them into the app store, and then Shopify doesn't have to build subscription functionality. The issue with that is they, they basically, they gave a license to print money to two companies and they grew like crazy and it's not really native to Shopify. So it's not perfect. And they've been yelled at for years. So this new checkout API set of endpoints is for subscriptions and post-purchase offers. And so it will be more and more open in the future. It's just that when they first launch and it's in beta, they just can't work with that many partners. They can't open it up to the entire world to start messing with the payment token and Shopify's checkout and everything. So they're going to go slow because they have to go slow. It's about to open up to a limited set of partners. And then as it becomes more stable, it'll be opened up further. That's, that's my understanding. I got to ask a silly question here, Jordan, which is, why does a company like Shopify not just develop this technology on their own? Shopify is just a software company. They might have a lot of money, but they're not like magicians. They're just like us. They just have more people, more resources. Those do not buy an understanding of a product category and the nuances and what merchants want and why. And so Shopify could 
they have the resources to build literally everything. They could build every piece of functionality in the entire app store, but it would be counterproductive and it would hurt their ecosystem. And it's probably not core to what, what they want to do. And so all those reasons combined make it unlikely that Shopify is going to start expanding into every single category. Some major things you can look at like email, right? They launch an email provider so that people who are starting out that need basic email don't need to use another provider. This is pretty deep into e-commerce, right? Post-purchase offers and the interactions and how it works. We have a lot more expertise and our competitors have a lot more expertise than Shopify does. And it's good for them and it's good for the ecosystem for them not to try to build everything. And so I think it, it makes sense that as a platform and not a product, Shopify has more considerations than just revenue and more considerations than just power. Like, should we do it because we want to own it? Yeah, I mean, I think from the outside looking in, it takes big ships a long time to turn. It's always surprising to me that a small company like yours can get done things more faster, quickly, efficiently, and even better than a large company with seemingly unlimited resources like Shopify. But I think that's really a calling to everybody out there that's like thinking about building something too, because it's like, you know, it's like the good idea. It's like, tell me your great idea. I have zero time to execute on it. Congratulations. I'll help you out, but like no one's stealing your idea, right? Yeah, I'm guilty of that, though. I fall into that. Oh, you're you're an idea stealer? No, no, no. I'm I'm an idea hoarder. <laughs> like I said before, I'm not good at work. I'm good at ideas. Got it. I feel like that's my currency. The strategy and the ideas that is the highest form of my value, and so I have a lot of trouble giving it out and. I know in, in, in today's world, the more you give, you get so much more back from sharing, but I, I have a psychological barrier around sharing my views of the future and that sort of thing, because that, that's, that's where all the money is in my head. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about like SaaS companies in general and just kind of the trajectory of them. A lot of investors would say like, this is the type of business to own right now. It has monthly recurring revenue. Everybody kind of wants to be a part of this movement investing in these types of companies they're just the the valuations are just becoming insane when you're to go out now if you're talking to somebody that's maybe in your position in 2014 2015 there's a lot of different types of businesses that you could start is there any reason to not start a SaaS business oh yes there are plenty of reasons not to start a SaaS. The biggest reason is the amount of time it takes to build revenue to something substantial is awful. Unless you are an exception, the number of successful people and companies that I know that are running SaaS that got to 10K in monthly revenue within one year is so tiny, which means you are going to burn through a lot of money and you are going to toil with an enormous amount of doubt. And it takes a lot longer than other businesses. The only way I was able to start a SaaS is because I was in a business previously that you did the work in one year and you collected the revenue about a year later. And so when I stopped that business, I had about a year's worth of revenue coming in from the previous years of work. And that's the only way I was able to do that. And then some other stuff as well, like, like supplementing with, with consulting and that sort of thing. The biggest reason not to start a SaaS is because it takes a really long time to build up to any sustainable level of revenue. And if you're not ready and able to 
last those 12, 18, 24 months of just darkness and despair, then don't do it. What I'm hearing is you got to be financially prepared to go into this. That's right, which is why, why a lot of people raise money because it's, I cannot imagine doing that again. If I built another SaaS, I think I would, I would raise money immediately. I cannot imagine going through another two years of that type of torture. I, it's crazy that I even did it. I don't know why I did it. I think I just didn't want to quit. What are some of the other differences between the people that are succeeding and failing? I don't know if I have any rules. The people that are succeeding have been in it for a while. <laughs> that, that, that's really what it comes down to. And, and that doesn't just mean sticking around. It means learning and changing and iterating and moving around and changing your pricing and changing your positioning, going after a different customer set. You almost need those cycles to learn and figure out what is right, these set of factors between pricing, positioning, market, customer base, approach, how you're acquiring them. All these things need to line up and it takes a bunch of cycles to learn that. What outside money does is it speeds up those cycles because you have more people doing more stuff in a shorter amount of time. Just because you raise money does not mean it's actually going to work. It just speeds it up either to failure or to success. So you can learn in a year a lot more if you raise 2 million bucks than if you didn't. One of the ways that I phrase it up on this show is uh, runway, right? So it's just, I need, I need enough runway so I can stay in the game, right? And if I can stay in the game long enough, then I can keep having conversations with Jordan and some of these other people and I can keep interacting with my customers and then something's going to happen. Yeah, the, the Paul Graham quote of stay alive long enough to get rich is true in SaaS. You really just need to be around so that you can figure out how to grow. On the flip side, the thing with SaaS and recurring revenue is that as the business owner, I don't just look at the revenue. I think about the enterprise value. So when we add, let's just call it $25,000 a month in MRR, in that month, the revenue went up by 25K, which means our runway got extended. We got closer to profitability. We became more profitable, right? Some impact on literally the accounting for that month. But what really happened is that we added $300,000 in annual recurring revenue and SaaS multiples these days, let's just call it 5X and be gentle. Yeah, We just added $1.5 million in enterprise value this month. That's the business I want to be in. I want to do that for 30 months. I want to add enterprise value and then sell it as an asset. Other assets don't do that. Other assets don't have this multiplier at the annual level that looks anything remotely like SaaS. That leverage in surviving and then starting to grow, it's like, yeah, the revenue growth is cool, but the enterprise value is what you're really in it for. That's, that's what I'm in it for. Other people want to run the same business for 30 years and they don't want to sell ever and like whatever else, you know, whatever your mix is, that's your mix. My mix is look at the enterprise value because that's what we're really trying to do. Well, I think that's an important distinction, Jordan, which is you know, you're on a trajectory here and part of your trajectory eventually might mean selling. You know, going back to my original question, if that is your idea of a good time, why not start a SaaS business? Because like you pointed out, the multiples are insane. The amount of money that people are willing to spend on these companies is, is just through the roof right now. They're one of the hottest commodities. So if you do have the runway, if you do have access to investors, if, if, if you are going to spend 80 hours a week working on something, shouldn't it be a SaaS business? If that's what you want to do, I very much hesitate to say that's what you should be doing, period. Like, no, no way. 
there's a lot of pain and you go through pain because you want to come out the other side. The truth is I, I had a pretty big transformation about two years into the business where I got into it for the money. I had an e-commerce business and that went pretty well, but it didn't have any recurring revenue in it. And so at the end of the first year, my brothers and I that were running it, we looked back and said to ourselves, if we don't spend another 20K in advertising costs next month, we basically don't have any business, which is, that's no fun. It's exhausting. You really just need to like before turn the speed up on the treadmill. And so we ended up selling that business because we came to that conclusion. And so my mindset going in was I need recurring revenue. I'm not touching a business that doesn't have recurring revenue. And so when I settled on software, that's why I got into it. And then pretty shortly after, once you start to build a team of four or five, six people, you realize money is not enough. You're the founder. Maybe that's enough for you and that's what you're in it for, but that's not what people come work for your company. They need a lot more than that. And the truth is that that process kicked off by Ben actually pulling me aside and saying, hey, buddy, I think we need to kind of stop talking about money is like the main thing. So credit goes to him on that. When I started changing my mindset around that and thinking about what kind of work environment, how happy are people at their job? How are we helping our customers be more successful, which leads their families to be more successful, which gives their communities, all that. When I started connecting that, like the whole experience became enriched. Now it's not money. Now it's like people and this thing that is bigger than the individuals. And going in, if I heard that, I kind of wouldn't buy it. <laughs> well, it's a hard message to hear. I mean, honestly, there's a bit of survivor's bias in it, right? It's like only when you start to think about other core values have your basic yes. financial needs been met a lot of times. Yes, that's right. You know, I think actually credit to Dan, who's the co-host of this podcast. He's the one that started to ask some of those questions to me as well. I was on a similar trajectory in our e-commerce business. Once you start to get 5, 10, 15, 20 people in your company, it can be really great when you're making money and everybody's high five. And it can be like not so great when you don't have a good month because then you're rallying around this one thing. But with all this growing and building, you have this platform, basically. And this platform, you're able to do things. You're able to hire people. You're able to spend money. You're able to make money. It's kind of this vehicle that operates you know, on its own a lot at a certain scale. And I think what happens with these platforms is they become instruments. They become vehicles for your dreams and your desires at a different level. So I guess the question that I have for you is like, what do you hope this platform will afford you in the future? What are some of your dreams that are still on the horizon that you feel like you can use this, this platform as a vehicle for? I'd like to lift everybody involved with the platform up, myself included. You know, from a financial point of view, I'd like to get into a position where my kids are fine. I don't have to work again if I don't want to. Let, that's a goal. And then everyone involved, every employee, contractors, customers, just kind of going up for the ride together. I want everyone involved to be super proud that they work there. I want people to be able to buy houses, just all the stuff, financial and otherwise. This system, like capitalism overall, I'm a big Milton Friedman fan. It is not zero sum. Just because we grow like crazy and become financially successful and our experience is amazing and our careers can develop onward from here doesn't mean we're taking anything away from anyone. There's no need to lose while all of us can kind of go big. 
Jordan, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today, stopping by, sharing the card hook story. I hope you had some fun. I did have a great time. Thanks for bringing up that email. All right. That's cool stuff. Thanks for having me on. A big shout out to Jordan Gal for swinging by the show. I enjoyed this, boss man. If you're interested in learning more about Cart Hook, you can check him out over at carthook.com. Jordan also has his own podcast with friend of the show Brian Castle called bootstrappedweb.com. That's an all timer, legit practitioner to preach ratio podcast right there. That's what I love so much about business podcasts is shows like Bootstrapped Web, Stars for the Rest of Us, folks that are actually doing the sorts of things they're talking about every week. So big shout out to practitioners taking a little bit of time to share their story on the web. One thing I want to point out, boss man, is I noticed that he didn't take you up on the offer to invest in Carthook now on those initial terms. Yeah, he didn't even he didn't even pretend to offer that, did he? <laughs> Look, you know, you invite me out to dinner one time, I don't accept. Uh, why are you going to invite me again? <laughs> I have respect for that. I have respect for that. I mean, I think one of the things that didn't kind of unfold when I was talking to Jordan fully, um, but after the episode uh, we talked about a little bit, is just investing in founders, investing in people, not investing in companies. At the time, you know, when Jordan approached us, like I kind of knew about who he was and some of the things that he was working on, but I, I didn't know him. And I still don't know him to the extent that his friends in college that invested in him knew him. And you're also, you know, you're not an investor. That's right. Look, this is a really cool story of serendipity and, you know, bumping into each other over the years, but it's also a story of like, there's never just one moment right? Like there's all kinds of stuff like this littered through our email inboxes as entrepreneurs that it's part of the entrepreneurial process. You just simply can't do everything. You're going to have stories like this in your career of things you should have done, but you didn't because you did other stuff. And that's just part of the process of being an entrepreneur. Emotionally, Dan, I'm totally fine with it, but I think- You're sleeping you know, okay the, at night. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, somebody said something to me the other day is like, you can't be jealous if you never tried. And I think that's true. As it pertains to Jordan and, and the investment, you know, we've come into these situations a couple of times and I'm actually starting to understand it better because we're not investors. Okay. But we have had a couple shots at investing in different businesses. But when you talk about investing in people, I think that that's actually a little bit more powerful. And this kind of situation with Jordan outlines that perfectly is like if you can understand somebody to the core and like what their motivations are and the things that they've gone through and then the places that they want to be. I've met people before that I think like they're unstoppable. Nothing is going to stop them from achieving greatness or business success. That's definitely somebody that I'm interested in investing in in that way. Now, if you see somebody that's had five or six exits or whatnot, they're not very hungry. They just kind of want to start this new thing because if they don't do something, they're going to be bored. You know, I don't know about the success rate there. I know you've worked with Jordan as a client now for months. Yeah. And we've done a lot of business together. I'm just curious, what are your impressions? What what lessons have you learned behind the scenes from working with Jordan? Ooh, now you're now you're asking for the dirt, man. <laughs> I am. Because you've come to me, let's be fair, you you're impressed by Jordan. You're inspired by him. 
basically the situation with them is uh, they had a massive rollout coming out. And so they're expanding their team like right away. Jordan was on Twitter and he's like, hey, I got to find these people. Can anybody help? And I chimed in. And we hadn't talked for a long time. I mean, the last time we talked might have been some casual conversation on Twitter, but I think the last email exchange might have been back in 2015. So, but we kind of run in the same circles. So I think we both kind of knew who each other were. And I followed him and listened to a couple of shows. So, anyways, I reached out and then we started a conversation about like, okay, who are you trying to hire and how fast? And they were trying to get it done really quickly. We kind of jumped right in there. It was a real test for us, honestly, over at Dynamite Jobs to figure out if we could fill these roles for them. And I think we did a pretty good job. And I think they were happy too. It was one of the first times in the service that we've been offering that I could see a really clear value proposition, which is let us do the hiring for you because you're so busy building product, which is making you a bunch of money. And if you take your eye off the ball of that project, you're going to lose money. Yeah. And check out the newsletter this week, by the way, if you want a little bit more behind the scenes on that, we're going to be sharing some of the behind the scenes process of how we've been developing the service you're referring to right now. Just professionally, like their organization is great to work with. It's like some organizations you work with and you just gel immediately. Like our team and their team, I kind of felt like we fit as one. And that's a cool experience, especially when you're hiring for a company. It makes it really easy because you kind of get to know the culture because you are part of their culture. And so for whatever reason, I just feel like we have like a bunch of the same like-minded people on our teams. There is this narrative emerging over the past few months on the show of software as a service business model being, you know, basically really difficult. You're operating in the dark for a long time. I'm thinking specifically of Rob Walling's comments, but also this sort of mindset that this is the way to achieve some of the most profitable outcomes as an entrepreneur. And I'm curious what your what your thoughts are on that developing story on the show. I got to talk to more people like Jordan to really understand that. I mean, We've been around a lot of SaaS businesses in the past, but we haven't necessarily been a part of that community. So it's kind of just been like, hey, you're a business owner, I'm a business owner, so we'll share those kinds of problems together, but not the nitty-gritty of like what owning a SaaS company is like. We're in the very beginning stages of that, Dan. And I think one of the things that I learned from Jordan and that I'm starting to learn from that community is like, you have to keep the lights on for several months, if not years, to figure out what your MVP is or your, or your product fit. And I think if you can bolster that, if you can pay for that through some type of services, A, you might learn more about your market and B, hopefully you can cash flow your development, which is essentially what we're doing. We're kind of in our infancy in terms of understanding how these SaaS companies work, but that's the way that we're doing it so far. The other way to do it seems to be to take on a bunch of money, if that's an option, if you don't have the funds to kind of propel yourself forward. And that's just not something that we've done so far. So I feel like our approach of like cash flowing our SaaS with services is the one that we're taking now. And I am curious to know if that's how other people did it. SaaS businesses are expensive as heck to build. And look, there's never been a better time to raise money for this kind of stuff. Just, you know, don't reach out to the boss, man. We know what he's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might not be a visionary investor, boss, man, but you're, you're a hell of an, a great interviewer. And I uh, really enjoyed listening to this one. Stick around. I've uh, got a lot of stuff coming down the pike, boss, man. We're going to be talking crypto in the coming weeks. Also, uh, we'll have someone on the show who's been incredibly influential in a lot of entrepreneurial lives, including my own. 
Shout out to Jordan for swinging by the show this week. And also shout out to our sponsor, smashdigital.com, who has offered this show an incredible amount of support. If you've got SEO needs, check them out over at smashdigital.com. That's it, boss man. We'll see you next Thursday morning. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.